Hello, welcome back to the British Food History Podcast, folks. My name is Dr. Neil Buttery, and today we are going to be looking at a favourite topic of mine, invalid food with food historian Lindsay Middleton. And I'll tell you more about what's coming up on today's episode after this short message. Hello, this is Tom Dinas, the host of the Delicious Legacy Podcast, a podcast all about food and history. As fans of the British food history, I know you have a bottomless appetite for all dusty recipes, unknown herbs, mysterious spices, and long-lost ingredients. So, why don't you join me? You can find the Delicious Legacy podcast wherever you listen to quality podcasts, such as the British food history, and also on Twitter and Instagram. And now back to your regular program. Now, one of my favourite things to do when I get a new old cookbook is go have a look at the recipes for medicines or for feeding the infirm or the sick. There's some weird and wonderful things out there, folks. So I was very pleased to see a new online resource called Dishes for the Sick Room, created by historian Lindsay Middleton, who's trawled through the collection of cookery books at Glasgow Caledonia University. And they date from the 18th and 19th centuries, Cookbooks then, I suppose, didn't really contain medicines, but lots of food to give to sick people or invalids at home under your care. Lindsay has just wrapped up her PhD at the University of Glasgow and the University of Aberdeen. She has studied food adulteration, narrative cookbooks, the ideology of food and thrift, and tinned foods. In fact, we touch on that little bit in today's conversation. Now, the focus of Lindsay's Dishes for the Sick Room project, the books, and the cookery from them, were created by some really forward-thinking women who are really at the forefront of the new science of dietetics. So we don't just talk about some of those weird and wonderful foods, but also about how these foods, the cookery books, and the women writing and using them all fit into a wider historical context. But before we begin, don't forget, I want to hear your thoughts, questions, and queries about today's episode. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of food memories after listening to this conversation today, of some of the foods perhaps you were given as a child. Some of them might be thought of with perhaps fondness. Others, maybe with a quivering revulsion. I want to know about it anyway. But of course, I'd like to hear about anything else. Questions you have about British food history, food history in the news, weird things that you've found. Get them over to me. The postbag episode isn't too far away. There's just going to be one more episode proper of this season anyway, I think, after this one. So get your emails to me, neil at britishfoodhistory.com. Send me a DM on Twitter at neilbuttery or Insta, that's dr underscore neil underscore buttery. Or leave a message under the posts that I put on there. Or you could go to the new British Food History Facebook discussion group. That's at forward slash groups forward slash British food history. Also, my new book, Before Mrs. Beaton, Elizabeth Raffold, England's most influential housekeeper, is available to pre-order now. Currently, there's an early bird discount on the Pen and Sword History website. I had a look the other day. You can also find on that website, of course, my previous book, A Dark History of Sugar. Info about all those things I've just talked about are in the show notes. As is a link to Lindsay's Dishes for the Sick Room website and various other things that we discuss. Also, also, if you want to support the blog and podcasts, please tell others about them. 
subscribe, leave reviews, follow. It's been doing really well in the charts recently. So thank you so much for listening, downloading, streaming, spreading the good word, I'm assuming. If you want to support a little bit more and become a £3 monthly subscriber and to receive my monthly newsletters and access to all of the extra content, including recipes and Easter eggs, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website, BritishFoodHistory.com. There, you can also just make a one-off donation if you prefer. Anyway, back to today's episode. So Lindsay and I covered a lot of ground. We talked about what inspired Lindsay to produce this excellent online resource in the first place. The archive books at Glasgow Caledonian University. The women behind the first domestic cookery school in Scotland. But also foods such as beef tea and toast water. And the administration of pre-digested food for the ill, amongst many other things. I'll be back at the end with more news, and I'll tell you about this week's Easter eggs, blog news, etc. But now, Invalid Cookery with Lindsay Middleton. Hi Lindsay, thank you very much for coming on the British Food History Podcast. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. Hello. Excited to be here. I saw on your Twitter feed quite recently, well, it's probably a couple of months ago now. We're in December 2022. Mm-hmm. And I saw your fantastic online resource called Dishes for the Sick Room. You collect a lot of recipes, particularly from, well, or maybe just specifically from um, Glasgow's uh, collections. So I guess first question is, how did you come to, well, first get interested in this very particular kind of food from a Mm. historical perspective? So I guess it was sort of a roundabout way I came to it. My research tends to be centred in the 19th century. Mm. And whilst I hadn't up until that point looked at invalid cookery specifically, one thing that always comes up in 19th century cookbooks and recipes is the health benefits of food or the nutritional elements of food or how digestible food is mm-hmm. literally whether it's apples ice cream or you know broiled steaks everything is sort of seen through this very health oriented lens and that was something that i kind of picked up on as quite interesting the sort of crossovers between food as we sort of perhaps see it now in cookbooks as something to be enjoyed and mm-hmm. shared versus food as either a medicine or something that was specifically to be eaten for its health benefits so From that kind of question, I moved into looking at invalid recipes specifically because that's another thing that 19th century cookbooks often tend to have that Mm. we don't see in modern cookbooks, like specific chapters on invalid recipes, which are generally quite a sort of similar catalogue between cookbooks of recipes that you're meant to prepare for people who are ill. Mm -hmm. So I was interested in this crossover between food as a a healer and recipes as remedies And I thought, okay, there's probably something that can be done here, particularly within a a Scottish and a Glaswegian context. I think both Scottish food as a cuisine and Scottish health Mm. are things that historically and perhaps even today have been sort of limited or overlooked or by stereotypes. And they're not things that are generally held up with great Mm. esteem. You know, we don't think of Scottish food in the same way we think of French cuisine. So, and I suppose a lot of the time people talk about maybe British cuisine, but what they really mean is English cuisine, don't they? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And a lot of the cookbooks I, I study are published in London, and it's very much mm. that sort of John Bull roast beef view of, of food. Mm-hmm. 
So I wanted to find out more about what Glasgow had and, and realised that Glasgow Caledonian University has a wonderful archive of stuff that's directly related to food because the university was founded on two institutions, one the Glasgow Polytechnic College and then the Queen Queen's College Glasgow. But Queen's College Glasgow itself was sort of born out of a, a domestic science school mm. and, and that in itself was born out of two different historical Glasgow cookery schools that were set up in the late 19th century. So there's this sort of long-standing history of culinary education mm. in Glasgow. So I thought, okay, this is a great opportunity to get into the archive and see what they have in terms of recipes and particularly invalid recipes because the Glasgow and West of Scotland College of Domestic Science was the first place outside London to do a di dietetics degree. So the cookery education and the sort of health education very much went hand in hand. Mm. That was sort of what kind of led me to this. And then I got a small grant from the Glasgow Medical Humanities Network mm. and the Wellcome Trust to undertake this Dishes for the Sick Room project, project. And I thought I'd basically go in and look at the invalid recipes and see what they were. You know, I was starting kind of on a blank slate, but wanted to just see see what was in the archive and see what would come out of it through this focus of, on food and health. When I first looked at the website, I thought, well, what's, what could you possibly use? There's going to be two or three examples. Mm -hmm. And I looked on there and there's dozens. I know. <laughs> really and it's good. one of those things that there's so much more that you, that could be done. And, and I will hopefully add to it as I, when I have time. But the archive has not, they have a whole selection of published printed cookbooks. They have student notes and course development notes from the development of these cookery courses. And it's really valuable to be able to get in there and sort of see how women who attended these schools were being taught to cook and how that was very much related to being taught to cook healthy diets for their family. So yeah, it's, it goes very much hand in hand. And I think as a food historian, people are like, oh, you're just studying cookbooks. How very, you know, quaint and domestic. Where actually <laughs> these women were kind of at the forefront of like medical practice at the time because they were then going into hospitals and, and being dietitians for patients so it's not just lovely cake recipes not that there's anything wrong with that at all but there's no. sort of you know <laughs> these are very important historical documents from a health perspective as well. I remember reading how the lessons were kind of there was two different types of lesson one for I guess your middle classes which came at a, at a mm -hmm. price mm -hmm. and then that was to subsidize classes for yeah. I guess you work you working class women who I suppose were the ones actually most in need of the education. <laughs> yeah, so it was when so the the first cookery school to be founded in Glasgow was the Glasgow or the one that's sort of then fed into GCU was the Glasgow Cookery School mm -hmm. and it was founded in 1876. Mm -hmm. The idea behind it, so the Glasgow School of Cookery, the idea behind it was that it would help working class women to get a culinary education so that they could feed their families. It's sort of this overarching 19th century view that if you fed your families good, healthy food, they would be able to go and do their jobs well and it would all sort of be towards the larger benefit of society. Very sort of problematic, benevolent, middle-class view <laughs> of how this would help women. And actually the free evening classes for working class women ended up being a bit of a flop because working class women didn't necessarily want to come in and, and be taught these prescriptive classes. Like, okay, we're going to help you to cook better and, and be a better person and, and look after your family better. So it didn't necessarily go the way it was intended. So from that, you know, you can see when the school's opening, the press reports often talk about that was what it was intended to do. It was intended to teach women so that they can stop 
particularly their husbands from falling into what were seen as vices, you know, alcoholism and gambling, Mm -hmm. because of course, if you can put a good dinner on the table, all the woes of the world will go away. (laughs) So all this was sort of following on the shoulders of these poor women. But yeah, the classes never took off very Mm. well for working class women. And it was the more expensive daytime classes for the middle class women that were popular and then went on to sort of be the backbone of the school. So you could go and you could study a variety of courses, whether that was housewifery and cookery, laundry work, up to sort of more professional, I suppose, diplomas like Mm -hmm. the sick nursing. And there were some real characters in there, especially Mm. in those early days, really hardworking. And I I mean, like you say, I guess the the, the working class lessons didn't quite go to plan. But however, I mean, there were very forward thinking and it seems forthright (laughs) uh, women running this school. Margaret Black really stood out. Was Was she the founder? No. So... There's an interesting sort of history there. And that was, yes, you're you're right. That was another thing that I loved about doing this project. Like mm. the amount of very forward thinking driven women that jumped out at all points of mm. the history. So we have the Glasgow School of Cookery was first founded, as I said, in 1876. And that was a woman called Grace Patterson. She founded it. It was like a board that founded it. It wasn't just sort of one person, but mm. she was for all intents and purposes, the principal of the school at that point. And she seems to, from records, have been a very sort of, she was a suffragist and a quote-unquote noted feminist, which back at that point probably meant she was quite radical. Mm -hmm. So she was running the Glasgow School of Cookery. And then they needed, obviously, teachers. So Margaret Black was widowed at this point, which put her in quite a advantageous, I suppose, if you don't want, you know, not to sound insensitive, but (laughs) it gave her the sort of freedom as a woman who had been married but wasn't, Um, anymore to do these sort of more professional things. So the Glasgow School of Cookery sent Margaret Black down to Kensington, where she went to the School of Cookery there to get her first class diploma in Mm. cookery. Mm -hmm. Um, And she then came back up to Glasgow to teach at the Glasgow School of Cookery. Um, So she was the head of the sort of cookery teaching. There's a sort of tantalising hint that there was a bit of a friction between Margaret Mm. Black and Grace Patterson. Black was a very into the temperance movement. She was, I believe, yeah, she was an evangelist. So there was sort of seemed to be differing political and personal opinions. So then in 1878, Black left the Glasgow School of Cookery and she set up the West End School of Cookery, which was a competing institution. And she was Uh, um, the principal there until she died, which was in 1903, I believe. Yeah, she passed away in 1903 and her niece, Mary McCurdy, took over the West End School of Cookery. And then in 1908, we have a re-amalgamation of the two cookery schools because I think they just sort of got to a point where actually being competing organisations wasn't working. Mm -hmm. Um, So they came back together and that was when they became the Glasgow and West of Scotland College of Domestic Science, which is a bit of a mouthful. (laughs) So (laughs) you can see throughout my website, I've given the anagram but even the anagram you know that's a good few letters so (laughs) it was shortened to the dough school d-o-u-g-h as in bread dough and it was kind of like colloquial fond name for the school so yes all these women and their varying political and personal differences were integral to the setting up of these schools black was is really interesting she also published several cookbooks which I look at at the site, they're really excellent resources for just understanding 
Scottish cookery and, and what was being taught in the institutions, as well as the sort of more health side of things as well. Indeed. Looking at health and looking at medicine, mm. or the medical side of things in the home is, yeah, is, as you said before, it's no stranger to a, a cookery book. No. And of course, we all try, in inverted commas, eat healthily. So we still are doing it, although we like yeah. to think we're doing it in a more scientific way. But even yeah. then, <laughs> it's still a bit of a murky uh, pool, isn't it? it How is. health, medicine and diet are all linked. Because they obviously are all linked. It's interesting. I was recently actually speaking about this to some medical students. Whilst they get taught some of the basics of, you know, diet, of course, and nutrition, dietetics doesn't come into modern medical teaching mm. as when you're doing a med- medical degree it's very much its own separate thing so there's still an odd divorce between how we view health through diet and medical health mm-hmm. and i think that historically wasn't the same historically it was very much doctors would treat you through diet and mm-hmm. i you know and apart from with certain conditions it doesn't really seem to be much that doesn't seem to be what we do and of course there are so many different diets and, and cookbooks and these sort of fad diets and, and nutritional things that come around it seems like cyclical and in terms mm. of fashion but it's still divorced from actual medical practice um, yeah. so that's an interesting thing that I think is more contemporary whereas in the past the two were very much there was no distinct lines drawn between them. Um, no. And I guess you were expected to maybe do a little bit more in homes in, I don't know, the yeah. 16th, 17th, 18th century. You briefly mentioned Thomas Dawson, mm. good, good Housewife's Jewel. Yes. Yeah, it's one of my favourite ones. And yeah. yeah, I remember the, uh, he's got a good uh, <laughs> invalid cookery segment. Well, it's, not, it's, it's, it's full on medicine yeah. and distillery and really and complex sort of stuff, isn't it? And and mm. I mean, yeah, looking at older cookbooks and there is... And even older, like before we have printed cookbooks, manuscript collections, the recipes for foodstuffs just coexist with recipes for plague waters or mm. Daffy's elixir or these sort of <laughs> wonderful, odd, bizarre cures for rheumatism or bezoars in your stomach or whatever it happens to be. And there's no sort of distinction. So whereas now I wouldn't, I, you know, I wouldn't expect to pick up my a Nigella Lawson cookbook or uh, a Nigel Slater and, and find the invalid recipe chapter. So <laughs> it's interesting. But yes, I think the 19th century, there is a wee bit of a division in that mm. the invalid recipe chapter kind of stands on its own in the cookbook. Whereas in earlier centuries, everything was just mixed up and, mm-hmm. and the kitchen would have been a site of medical and clinical practice as much as it was of food preparation. So the first thing that you would do if you were ill would be to get someone who knew how to in the kitchen to prepare you an elixir or a tonic or whatever it happened to be. And it also, I guess, reflects the fact that doctors and clinicians weren't as easy to get, especially if you were sort of more working class or Mm -hmm. um, you lived in an area that didn't have them. So the responsibility for health was far more situated within the home. And I suppose it's moving away from the idea of four humours and everything, yeah, kind of balancing sort of humours, and it's approaching it in a humors, scientific yeah. way, at least trying to approach it mm-hmm. from a scientific, objective way, and not, I guess, trying not to bring with them in any mm. kind of previous ideas or, yeah, or, or biases. So in the 18th and 19th century, we really see a move away from that kind of humorist approach to health. Certainly it lingered in the cultural meanings, so 
women and children, you weren't necessarily meant to be eating a lot of meat or a lot of spicy food because it might mm. upset your delicate sensibilities. If you're a woman, the last thing you would want to do was eat something spicy or too sweet or with alcohol. So it does linger, but the development of sort of new scientific and medical thought over the 18th and 19th century was gradually kind of replacing that um, and we moved away from seeing the body as one entire entity to more actually focusing on individual organs and, and their treatment. One of the things that really kind of piqued my interest was when I saw your website was really the fact that um, you picked a subject. Oh, almost it was it was low hanging fruit in a way, and I can't believe I hadn't thought of it already. <laughs> <laughs> because it's usually if I get a new cookery book, old cookery book, mm-hmm. it's one of the first places I go is the yeah. invalid cookery section. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the food in there a little bit. The stuff that's familiar, uh, mm-hmm. the stuff that I would say is nice, and yeah. some stuff that I would say looks pretty pappy and rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> so what emerged from looking both at the sort of development of teaching materials and course materials from the historical cooking schools and over the series of published printed cookbooks that I was, they weren't necessarily all published in Glasgow or Scotland. They were published in London and and elsewhere Mm. as well, but very much a set of invalid recipes emerged. So you can always count on there being at least one recipe for beef tea. Sure. Beef tea is like the holy grail of invalid invalid cookery. It's just Mm -hmm. no escaping it. Then lots of jellies and puddings often made with sort of, um, starches like arrowroot or tapioca. Mm-hmm. I was also very interested in how these very international colonial ingredients become so adopted into our culinary historical repertoire that they are, you know, they're not just foods we eat, they're foods we give to sick people. So mm-hmm. puddings and, and things like that, and um, jellies, which could be sweet or savory. So you have the sort of more traditionally aspicy gravies like calf, mm-hmm. calf's foot jelly and just stuff that <laughs> nowadays doesn't seem very appetizing at all or more palatable milk jellies. Mm. Are you much of a, a cook at home or a historical cook at home, should I say? Have you tried any of these things? So I am very much a cook at home and mm. then I dabble in the historical cookery. Mm-hmm. I often think, why have I chosen the 19th century? I mean, there are some weird and wonderful things. The Victorians did bizarre things with food. The foods I tend to be interested in, and for some reason, are not the appetizing ones. So um, I've done a lot on tinned meats, and it's all just about disgusting, horrible, poisonous stuff, or, you know, jellies and aspics. In terms of the invalid recipes are ones I've actually cooked a few of. So I did a sort of public event where I invited people to come and try some of this stuff. And I made a milk jelly, mm-hmm. an arrowroot pudding. In fact, it was an arrowroot souffle pudding. Ooh. So it had a sort of slight Swish. French influence. Mm. Yeah. And toast water. Um, <laughs> That's so, one of my favourites. <laughs> yeah. So the milk jelly was fine, although it did, I mean, it had beef gelatin in it. So that was quite easy for me because I just opened a packet. I wasn't going to as much as I'm committed to the historical realism, I didn't fancy stinking the whole building, tenement building out by boiling a calf's foot for nine hours. I didn't think that well, would be no. very neighborly of me. So I just used, it was sort of just milk cooked down with some gelatin. I did add some pink food coloring, which it said was optional in the cookbook I was using. So this was from the Glasgow cookery book. 
which actually made it slightly more disconcerting because it then just looked like sort of the color, exact color of flesh. It wasn't like <laughs> a nice, wasn't a nice attractive strawberry milkshake thing. Right, it okay. was slightly odd. But that's just panna cotta, right? That sounds yeah, all right. Very, it did have a tiny bit of sugar in it. Mm-hmm. So very mildly sweet, milky, fairly inoffensive if you ignored the gelatin sort of slight yeah i mean jellied things are a love or hate thing anyway the arrowroot pudding was actually surprisingly nice um i had my mum down and she was like helping me make these things and she was like oh god this is reminding me of being young and having to eat disgusting tapioca things but i love tapioca pudding and sago pudding and stuff like that I've never actually had tapioca because my mum hates it so much from her childhood that she never made it for us. But then my grandpa absolutely loves loves that kind of yeah, I love that kind of grainy milk puddings, custards. I mean, I like I like a rice pudding, love a custard. So they're they're not that dissimilar. No. Um, But yes, the arrowroot pudding was basically just the arrowroot, which is very much like cornstarch, just completely thickens up, mixed with milk and eggs. Um, and then because it was a souffle one, we baked it and it did, it puffed up quite nicely and it tasted like a sort of inoffensive, slightly sweet Yorkshire pudding. So okay. that was fine. I can imagine that would kind of be quite appetizing if you were ill. And then the toast water is as it sounds. And it's one of my favorites too, because I just love telling people, they're like, toast water? Yeah. What? I couldn't believe it the first time I saw... So, well, let's, let's tell people what toast water is at first, if it's not yeah, obvious. So, so toast water <laughs> is, as it sounds, literally toast and water. So you over toast a bit of bread, so you have that nice kind of char on it. And then I've seen, interestingly, I've seen recipes. So when I make it, I make it with hot water, so it forms a kind of tea. Yeah. But I have seen recipes that steep it in cold water cold for quite brew. a while. Cold so it is, tea. yeah, cold, oh gosh, it sounds like the next hipster craze to sweep the nation. Um, cold brew toast water. Yeah, um, so it is just toast and water. I have also seen it called donkey tea, which is a different context. So toast water is always an invalid recipe mm-hmm. and it is for drinking if you're feeling ill. Whereas donkey tea, from what I've read, it was when people who were poor and couldn't afford tea or coffee but wanted something hot to drink that had some of a, fla- a tiny flavour in it yeah. would steep burnt bread crusts in hot mm. water and, and drink that as a form of tea. So they hope it than... looked like tea, which is yes, kind of be exactly. evocative of yeah. actually having the stuff. Aww. Yeah, I know. But the toast water itself, I was surprised, like quite pleasantly surprised, actually. I did it sort of as authentically I c- as I could with bread I'd bake myself. And it was not unpleasant. It sort of tasted like a mild vegetable stock. It was far more savoury than I expected. Oh, okay. What was the idea behind something like that? Because obviously, you know, you've been talking about dietetics. What's what's meant to be mm. toast water? Because I was, because as soon as I saw it, I just thought, how ill does somebody have to be that all they can manage I is toast flavoured water? Toast flavoured water. <laughs> well, I think first and foremost, it was so inoffensive that. You know, it's not even like tea, no caffeine, nothing that would stimulate you or potentially upset your digestion. And then the only other thing I can think that I've sort of traced through these cookbooks is the idea that certain food types give you are like carbonaceous or mineral or nitrogenous. So it's this idea Mm. of like different foods performing different functions in your body and either forming flesh or keeping things going. It's 
essentially what we now think of as carbohydrates versus proteins, but sure. just expressed in a different way. Mm-hmm. And some of the cookbooks list things like wheat and certain grains as both nitrogenous and carbonaceous. So I guess the idea would be if you were really physically weak, that you couldn't handle anything, having that slight slight nutritional seepage, I suppose, from mm. the bread into the hot water would be giving your body some nutrients. Yeah, I guess it's um, a first step up from yeah, to getting from back onto a proper water. diet. Yeah, yeah. So yes, I but, guess it just makes sense from that point of view. Okay, good. It makes sense now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Next um, time you're feeling poorly, you know what to do. Some of the other things that uh in there that I thought looked good were barley water. Mm. I've never yeah. made any. I mean, I've had the Robinson's barley water. Yeah, same. I've not made it myself <laughs> I've never either. Made but it. similar idea, I think. Just fortified, you know, and, and and fortified milk comes up a lot. It's drinks beverages with a bit more in them. Yeah, it seems like of, it's quite a viscous yeah. drink, not like yeah. what you get in a bottle. Maybe I'll mm. have a go. Yeah, maybe I'll have a go. And one other thing that I is definitely good that I've made are the savoury jellies, which do sound mm. gross, but I really like those. Yeah, and the egg egg set ones as well are really good. Yeah, so egg flip was something that came up quite a lot, which uh, is a similar sort of egg-based jelly type thing. And then there was a lot of um, like Irish moss jellies, which... Another favourite of mine, actually. Yeah, so... And and that would have been very nutritionally beneficial because the seaweed, I believe it is, rather Mm -hmm. than moss... Carrageen, it's called sometimes too, isn't it? Yeah, did have lots of nutritional... And it's still eaten today, but... Yeah, um, the savoury jellies. I haven't made, I mean, I've made aspics and stuff like that myself. And they're basically the same thing. But again, I think just easy to swallow and not too hard. On, your your tummy didn't have to work hard, I guess, to do mm. any digesting. And I do think some of these things do sort of leach over. I can remember when I was little and being ill and my mum making me jelly, you know, and, and not savoury jelly, but just sort of out of the little jelly cubes and it was just something that was easy on the stomach i guess it's tea and toast these days isn't it because it's people's yeah. go to if you, if you can eat something i was trying to think of the things that i had as a kid and oh, i mm. couldn't really think of anything so i lived in calgary for a bit when i was little and you couldn't buy ribena over there just because it was a british thing couldn't buy it. we had to buy it in scotland and then bring it over to canada we only got to drink ribena when we were ill and right. then when we moved back to Scotland, I was like, oh my God, it's readily available everywhere and made myself thoroughly sick of it. And to the point that I don't like Ribena oh, okay. today. <laughs> Put up um, life. And then other things like the brat diet. So whenever I was ill, like, you know, had been ill with a sickness, my mum had always said bananas, rice, apples and toast. And that would be all you'd eat until your stomach had kind of could handle more. But I mean, things like beef tea... As very much sort of stems from, it's just a bone broth. Well, actually, funnily, it's not a bone broth. It's made from the actual meat yeah. often, not than the bone, not the bones. But things like bone broths are still very much thought of as a as something to eat when you you know when you're feeling unwell. So actually, let's let's just briefly talk about beef tea in a bit more detail. How does one go about making some beef tea? Just in case anybody wants to go off and make some themselves. I I opted not to do this for my public event because I was like, okay, people can't come. People can't come to a thing about invalid recipes and be going home with food poisoning. So decided (laughs) it was best to avoid. But it is held up. So Margaret Black in her household cookery and laundry work has this big section on sick room cookery. And she writes, the food of the sick should be as 
buried as much as possible and prepared in the very best manner that the materials will admit of. Beef tea particularly requires skillful preparation as life and returning health often depend on it. So she's holding up beef tea as literally, you know, the elixir of life mm. here. Um, she had four different recipes in that cookbook for beef tea. So she had beef tea simple way, beef tea best way, raw beef tea and beef tea pudding, um, hmm. which is when the beef sort of elevated into something more solid, I suppose. Um, <laughs> um, they all all of these recipes and this is very much repeated and it's not just her it's re- these are repeated in other cookery books and um, the, the methods of preparation so it's just lean beef salt and water and all you would do was steep the beef in water again interestingly different recipes call for different temperatures of water different times so some just say have it in warm water that's sitting by the fire for several hours. Some it was hot water. The raw beef tea was cold water and that was just meant to steep. So to absorb the nutrition from the the meat, I suppose. You would then, yeah, you would add this salt. You would just mix it all together, steep it for however long you, you would never boil it. It wasn't like making soup. It was it was like brewing a tea. Beef tea tartare. Yes, exactly. Um, and then Some people would... must have absolutely keeled over. If they weren't sick at first, they must have been definitely sick after having Especially raw if you're having you know, steeped. beef tea and then you're following it with a nice plate of gruel. Like that's one of these things, these invalid recipes do turn the appetite more than they, mm. they you know, it's not food that you're like, Oh, I'm feeling unwell and that that really will get me going it's it does certainly to modern palates seem to mm. make you feel ill rather than make you feel better um but yeah she would then strain the beef and and then and then kill her patient it. yes i mean you have to also <laughs> wonder about the quality of beef that people were using because if you weren't using sort of fresh butcher's meat as it were steeping it could be pretty dangerous because you're not you know necessarily cooking it properly yeah. You know, I mean, there's refrigerations around, but I mean, it's a pretty expensive yeah, thing, I mean, isn't it? When Black's writing, which is in the 1880s, so 1882 is her household cookery and laundry work. Mm. Some people would have had pantries and, and, and space to refrigerate things and, and refrigeration is starting to creep in, but it's very expensive and it's not not by any means, you know, not until well into the 20th century would it mm. be the norm for people to have mm-hmm. fridges. So. Yeah, the raw the raw beef recipe is just raw beef steeped in cold water for a couple of hours. But she apparently Black wrote that there are extraordinary healing properties in the unboiled juices of meat, and in cases of extreme illness, this is invaluable. So I guess she would only Gosh. prescribe that if it, if someone was really really bad. Hmm. Um, <laughs> the, I know, dubious. I'm dubious. The other thing that's and the other thing that's fascinating about these texts that I guess I can't really know as a historian who's just reading texts is there must have been an, a certain level of tacit knowledge that these women and certainly I guess if they were if they were at the cookery school and being taught that's very different because they're getting the whole uh, syllabus as well but it doesn't necessarily ever tell you what type of illness these recipes are for so it's just a sort of illness with a capital I rather than okay, this is for someone with a cold, this is for someone with a vomiting bug. You know, there's no specificity. So I suppose sure. that kind of implies that the women who are using these cookbooks at home 
would know themselves exactly when to apply beef tea or versus mm-hmm. a jelly versus gruel. But it's interesting to sort of guess how they would have actually been practically used. The beef tea is an interesting one because certainly in the in the 19th century into the 20th century, you can very much see the commercialization of things like beef tea. So Black, Black yeah. is talking about... Um, so her cookbook, she opens the entire cookbook, not just the sick room chapter, talking about nitrogenous, carbonaceous and mineral foods. And these are her three sort of constituents of diet that you mm-hmm. had to eat in a balanced way in order to be healthy. And that theory of nutrition directly came from the German chemist Eustace von Liebig. So a very famous chemist in the 19th century, started off doing things with plants and fertilizers and then realized from his work with fertilizers that actually human nutrition could be thought of in sort of similar ways in Mm -hmm. terms of what plants needed. Mm -hmm. So Liebig went on to patent and create Liebig's extract of meat. And that, I believe, became OXO. And, and paved the way for things like bovril. Mm-hmm. And then bovril, of course, is one of the big health, commercialized health foods yeah. in the late 19th century. We start getting these those wonderful posters with the big bull on them. <laughs> Alas, my poor brother with oh, the little yes. jar of bovril at the bottom. <laughs> um, and things like bovril, that was the commercialized. So instead of having to steep your beef for hours, you would just buy a jar of bovril, mix a teaspoon, into a into some hot water and that was your beef tea and then there are other sort of interesting crossovers where we see the the scientific and medical discourses coming through these cookbooks and then that sort of also linking to the commercial side of things so in another one of black's cookbooks she has a recipe for tripe fricassee which Mm -hmm. sounds delicious (laughs) and in it she writes that Tripe has some property resembling pancreatic juice in its formation, which aids digestion. It makes slightly artificial digestion. So this was the idea that eating the part of someone's, like part of an animal's digestive organs would aid human digestion. And that was very much a scientific discourse that was going on in the 19th century. And that then trickles into cookbooks, as you can see with Mm. Black's recipe, the fact that she's even mentioning it is a really interesting crossover there. But also it goes into the commercial commercialized side of things. So in the late 19th century, there was also Benger's food or Benger's food. I'm not sure, never sure whether the G is hard or soft, mm. but it was a pre-digestive food that had been digested using the pancreatic juices of another animal, I think normally a cow. And by the thought was you eating this food that was already pre-digested would be easier for you. So if you were an infant or if you were ill, mm-hmm your stomach wasn't having to work as hard. So that was an interesting one to come up to actually see her referencing that artificial digestion in a recipe. And again, that is a recipe for an invalid. And then in the Glasgow cookery book, which was initially published in in 1910, but has a very long cycle of Mm. editions, I find it interesting that in the 1950s, at the end of the invalid recipe chapter, we get these diabetic recipes. So Ooh. this was something I hadn't seen before. And there it's for diabetic lemon curd, plum jam, quick marmalade and marrow jam. And, and the difference is these preservatives, they use saccharin or sorbitol powder, these like artificial sweeteners mm. rather than sugar. But those, you know, when you then go into the history of those chemical products, as it were, they were only developed at that point in time. So it's 
interesting to use these recipes to kind of work out actually what's going on in the scientific discourses and the commercialized food production practices of a time. It's an interesting part, a point in history, isn't it? Because they're, they're almost mm-hmm. there with getting yeah. the science right. There's just a few kind of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that they haven't quite worked out, which I guess required kind of more mm. technical uh, biochemistry, which just yeah, wasn't exactly. available at the time. Vitamins were not quite pinned no, down then, for example. No. Yeah, there were certainly um, some of the adverts in the cookbooks. You start seeing things like vitamins and, and there was su- all kinds of supplements, but that's very much just sort of emerging in a commercialised way. And again, I think it's that sort of that point, late 19th century, where these things become commercial consumer products rather than things that you would prepare in the home yourself. So it's that mm. kind of break, which I suppose we're very much even more so now in in used to being able to go out and buy products rather than having to think about how to make them ourselves. Uh, Well, it really is such a fascinating resource you've created. I hope you're very proud and pleased with it because you should be. I think because food and health are so universal, I wanted it to be something that wasn't just a research paper or a book chapter. I wanted it to be something that really kind of shed light on how fascinating these collections are. And I really hope whether it's from myself or other people, it goes on to sort of inspire some more work. Well, it's time to wrap up, really. Uh, I'll obviously make short links to the website are in the show notes, because I'm sure lots of people are going to want to check that out. Yes, yes, But um, what else is happening in the world for you, 2023? Yes, in a sort of transitional period in terms of my research where I'm moving to look more specifically at Scottish food history, which mm. I think is woefully unexplored or, or tends to get earmarked into porridge and, and deep fried Mars bars and haggis sure. and whiskey. Yeah. None of which are bad things, but there's more going on. So exactly, I'm very interested in how looking at historical Scottish food production practices and, and, and recipes can sort of inform perhaps future and present state of Scottish food, whether that's in terms of tourism or sustainability. You know, there's so much that can be learned from how we produced our food and and how we eat and how we have that relationship with food that I think will be increasingly important questions going forward in in times of food uncertainty like we've had in the past few years. So yeah, just sort of digging around in the past to see see what's good. Mm -hmm. And of course you've got your other work on, like you briefly mentioned it earlier, canning. Yeah, tinned foods is one of my, I don't really know how it happened, but tinned foods has become one of my areas of expertise (laughs) and specifically the, the 19th century reception of tinned foods and how things like failed expeditions and poisonings and and very much tainted the the reception of tinned foods in the public and you can read that mm. through the recipes in the cookbooks and so i people think people were rightly suspicious yes at exactly first. Mm. oh we'll have to come on again and talk to us about it yes tin are always happy to talk very about interesting <laughs> <laughs> that's great well i'm gonna let you uh, get on with your day yeah all i can say really is uh, thanks again and good luck in 2023 with your new projects Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And there's a link in the show notes to Lindsay's social media page, as well as the website Dishes for the Sick Room. I encourage you to go and check it out. There's recipes in there, of course, for beef, tea and toast water, but it's a trove of other information too. I've also left links to my own blog posts and recipes because we mentioned them today. I already have a recipe for a savoury set egg custard, 
also known as seftons, and carrageenan stroke Irish moss jelly stroke pudding, which is genuinely one of my favourite puddings. But I have to admit, it's the closest I've ever got to making somebody puke with something that I've made. <laughs> A paying customer, that is. So it's not everyone's cup of tea, but I love it. Subscribers, there is one Easter egg from today's episode. It's quite a long one, and it's a really interesting chat about the long-running Glasgow cookery book. It went through many editions from, well, the 1910s right up to the 1970s, and we talk about the development of the books and the classes that it complemented, as well as how the invalid cookery section particularly changed through all those editions and decades. Did any of those recipes we talked about, for example, stay for the full run? Well, you'll have to listen and find out. Also for subscribers, there will soon be a blog post about one of the foods, actually it's a drink mentioned in today's episode, barley water. I'm going to have a go at making it. I've never made it myself. That will appear a few days after this episode goes out, so keep an eye out. If you want to become a £3 subscriber or treat me to a virtual pint or coffee, go to the support the blog and podcast tab on the website britishfoodhistory.com. And yes, don't forget to contact me with comments, queries, questions for that upcoming post bag episode. Right, it's time to go. Have a good week. I shall be back soon with another episode of the British Food History Podcast. Goodbye.